speakers ready to take on some questions here? We're going, I'm not going to read these in any particular order, just in the order that I have them here. They don't seem to be replications, but if I should come across one um, that's identical to something I've already asked, I'll go on to the next question. Okay, so for Lutheran um, LSSM, it'll be much faster if you say that. <laughs> Why has the number of refugees gone down since 2012? Um, each year, the Congress and the President come together and agree on a number of um, refugees that they allow into the United States, and so each year that varies. For the last five years, it's been between 50 and 70,000 pretty much every year. Um, the President's declaration that we'll take 10,000 Syrians up to that to 85,000, I think, projected for 2016. But um, the other piece of that is you also have to have the United Nations working and um, the State Department and others working overseas to process refugees. Um, so it's not all under our control whether or not we actually meet that ceiling that we set. But it's a rather low ceiling considering um, what we have historically done in years past. Thank you. Okay, the next question, um, and I, I'm not sure if this is directed to all three of you, so um, I will read it and then all of you can chime in if you have information. Is there any data on the percentage of refugees who become U.S. citizens? What are the barriers to becoming citizens and the barriers to political participation slash voting once they become citizens? There's another part to this question. And are you familiar with welcomemichigan.org? If so, how can we as a community become a welcome Michigan city? Um, so we've got about 616,000 immigrants in Michigan, and um, the current statistic is 52%, so 313,000 um, become citizens and the, as far as we know it's usually um, it's usually money um, or the application um, uh, the application is can be frightening because when you're working with immigration um, there's this sort of fear that if I make a mistake and it's considered fraud um, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult process um, usually they ask for information but if it looks like fraud, there people are really scared that they'll um, get deported or that their green card status will be revoked, their um, um, permanent uh, residence status. So it's usually fear. Um, so one of the things I would invite you to do is go to Welcome Michigan. I think it's either .com, .com or globaldetroit.com and sign up to be a cultural ambassador. One of the things that we do jointly with Michigan United and many, many other organizations um, uh, mostly Southeast Michigan, but not entirely. There's uh, some work in Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo. Is that we will um, connect volunteers to this process, and so you get trained on on the process of helping someone fill out the form because it's like an intake. So you learn to do it. It's really really fun to watch a person become a citizen, um, and we always have lawyers that will assist. So you're not the you're not going to ruin somebody's chances of becoming a citizen. There's a lawyer that's going to check everything, and they usually will go and come three or four times. Like go collect this information and come back, and then you know they move around. So I'll be here this week or whatever. Um, so you can't do you can't you can't hurt anyone, right? So. Um, but it's a really wonderful process to help, um, especially there's a lot of elder people who need guidance and have like had a conversation about it. 
um, and then you get to experience what it's like. And it's, it's I mean, especially for young people, I think it's an, a really amazing experience to, to find out. Like, we take this for granted, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. And you can um, sign up as whole schools. And so if you've got a church group or whatever you have, we will accept you as a volunteer. So please, I, you know, at least do it once in your lifetime. It's really awesome. <laughs> Anyone else have anything to share on those topics? Thank you. Um, I'll add. So how can we become a welcoming city? So I think checking out that website um, that Raquel mentioned and that someone from the audience mentioned as well is great. Um, the city of Lansing just signed that. So I think as a city, you have to talk about um, with the city's leadership to make a resolution. And then there are actually benefits that come with that and assistance that welcoming Michigan and welcoming America can give to a city that decides to do that. It's usually city council or the mayor or the commissioners or whatever entity, whatever municipality is working on it. Thank Not you. that hard at all. Okay, are there ways um, that you are currently working with organizations or companies to place the children who are on that? I believe that would go to your question, Diane. Well, we can talk about our partnership. <laughs> That's right. Um, I have been taking my show on the road and I have spoken at um, several mosques in the area that have been very receptive. Some of the children that need homes are Muslim. And I'm so excited about those that are coming forward as well as churches and putting things in the newspaper and working with Global Detroit and working with Raquel on um, trying to outreach um, here in Southeast Michigan for homes as well. So if anybody has other ideas of ways to reach people that might be interested, just tell me afterwards. I'd be happy for any other ideas. And I can sort of so I've got about 20 girlfriends that are really like in <coughs> roots deep in Southwest Detroit. And she mentioned a couple of last year, like we'd love some Spanish-speaking homes and Spanish-speaking communities um, to help some of the unaccompanied minors. And I'm like, we could do that. So we're going to do quarterly meetings until all the children are placed. Um, and we've got friends in Pontiac, and we've got friends everywhere, and we're going to make it fun. And I think most of the time, it's just not knowing what it is. Like, it seems really overwhelming, and so it's just a matter of finding out and just getting informed. Great. Thank you. Okay, another question. Are the 2.6 jobs created, I believe, um, this goes to one slide you have, Diane, resulting from refugees being entrepreneurs? If so, what is the percentage of entrepreneurs? Oh, I hate that question. <laughs> well, um, it just really depends on how we define entrepreneurs because um, sometimes uh, a person can, for example, start a business and be a sole proprietor and you know start to purchase from the community or they start a business and hire you know, people. So it really depends on how it's sort of been debated on how that's defined. But there's a lot of statistics, and I, I'm unfortunately not one of those persons that can memorize statistics very well. But um, I wrote down something earlier. It's it's a, it's like something like um, <coughs> two-thirds of all. Wait, I don't want to give you wrong statistic. Okay, here's a, here's a common one that we know that is really high. In 2010, 40% of all five, five Fortune 500 companies were immigrants or had a partner who was an immigrant. So like we know that the, the percentage of businesses that are started are just higher in immigrant populations. So that's part of the, the work that Global Detroit does. We go out, um, we help, um, we have small business classes in, in um, Spanish. We're working on um, Bengali and um, Arabic for Arabic speakers. So providing the content, and then we also do um, 
like small uh, business lending and micro lending. So we're trying to make that easier and sort of grease that wheel. But if you will email me, there's a real, I was just looking at it earlier, there's a really wonderful sheet. And here's another example that, here's another example that I think is factored in, but isn't quite mentioned. Um, so on average, we have 30,000 international students in Michigan. We're the eighth largest in the country, and they spend $927 million a year. So that's generating lots and lots of jobs, and they're, they're spending money. So that's where we help recruit international students, and often they stay. And I think 52% of, of um, all doctorates in Michigan go to international students, so that or immigrants. So that just tells you the kind of momentum that um, education has and the potential for business. Thank you. Um, this question was directed just at Lutheran Social Services, but I'm going to uh, take a reach here as a moderator and probably apply it to all three of you because I think it could be applied. Um, how much of your budgets come from government funding, if at all? And how much of that funding um, is helping ref ref refugees specifically? Um, does any of the funding help veterans in need? Or is it just specifically geared at refugees? And um, how? what is the tax burden or the tax implication for the government funding um, on the taxpayer for services like the ones that your organizations provide? We don't receive any, um, any government funding. It's all foundations and private donations. Um, so we are constantly in fundraising mode, um, and yeah, we don't. We're working right now. We are working. We're convening all of the refugee resettlement agencies. Global Detroit is, and we're applying for funding through also foundations. It's um, there is a, like some you would know more than me about the government funding, but um, in terms of our work, we don't receive federal federal funds. <coughs> We do. Um, LSSM has a really diverse um, number of services, so refugee work is a small portion of what we do. Um, we do more work with the elderly than we do in any other service area. We also have services for people with disabilities. We have services for a wide variety of people. Um, and so some of that is also insurance funding, private funding for people who need care, in-home care for those that need that temporarily and things like that. Um, we do receive federal funding for a refugee program, and there are statistics out there that I also do not have memorized for today um, about the number of years that it takes a refugee to pay back everything that was invested in him or her as far as federal funds, and it doesn't really take that long. Um, I think another factor is um, the age of our population and that our immigrant groups are often younger, um, and so for our tax base to continue having um, Younger immigrant populations is very good for our economy and continues to support everyone in the community. Zero federal. <laughs> <laughs> we are funded 100% by our donors and civil liberty organizations, civil rights organizations don't traditionally never really have gotten federal funding in part because we have like three lawsuits against the federal government. Right <laughs> so that kind of cancel that, cancel that. Okay, I think you're gonna to wanna to keep the mic because the next one's uh, directed at you. Um, we often hear that many people who express their concerns or worries about radical Islamic terrorism coming into this country of refugees are called Islamophobes and are voicing their concerns 
is causing a rise in hate crimes against Muslims. So do you know what are the FBI statistics for hate crimes against Muslims? What percentage of all religious hate crimes are against Muslims, against Jews, against Christians, etc.? Okay, good question. Uh, I don't have the exact statistics like at my fingertips or have it memorized. Uh, I will say that there has been in the past year there's a 300% increase regarding uh, hate crimes relating to American Muslims in the year uh, prior. Uh, the number one religious group who uh, has hate crimes uh, against it, uh, logged by the federal government, actually aren't Muslim Americans, actually Jewish Americans. Um, I tend to think that actually the Jewish American community is more organized and people are more likely to uh, report those crimes. I think that actually the, the crimes that take place against Muslims, many of them are not recorded, and I know specifically because in my office I get calls or casually talk to people about, about incidences or threats, and uh, there's a type of internalized oppression that has taken place to the Muslim community where there are people who almost think that uh, it's just the way it is that certain things happen, uh, like threats driving down the street, um, things being yelled about go back to your country or, you know, we're going we're gonna to kill you all, things like that, you know, it's a type of an internalized oppression. Uh, in terms of people speaking out against uh, extremism and being scared of refugees, I think that we kind of touched on that about basically that's not really based in empirical data. And there are politicians who basically have ginned up a lot of fear and xenophobia for cheap political points because when we look at actually who commits uh, mass violence, mass shootings, or domestic terrorism, then you would see not only does it not even, uh, there's been zero refugees in the past 10 years, but even according to empirical data, that uh, American Muslims or Muslims are a very small percentage of actually domestic terrorism that have taken place uh, on the homeland. And I want to give you a statistic about how insincere the dialogue or discourse is. Since 2004, there have been 229 Americans who've been killed by a terrorist attack. In the same time, 310,000 Americans have been killed by gun violence according to non-political means. So we're talking about over a thousand times greater, right? We're talking about a thousand times more. We're talking about a thousand times more of people just getting shot and killed for non-political means than someone who gets killed. Now in 2015, we had almost a mass shooting. Almost every day of the year, there's a mass shooting. It means four or more people shot constitutes a mass shooting. 353 mass shootings, 2015. Two of those were reportedly by Muslims, which means 351 mass shootings in America were committed by non-Muslims. So I mean, I, I, I just want to put that into perspective when we, uh, because there's, because again, I think that a lot of the fears. Uh, or a lot of the discourse that people have used this as a political football to score cheap political points that is not 
grounded in any type of scientific study of criminology or empirical data. See, I like to say, like, let's look at the facts. Let's look at the, 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 the crime data and statistics. And don't trust what I'm saying. Go look at the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI statistics. Don't take CARES word for it or ACLU, the so-called liberal groups. Like, look at the, 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 the data going back to the Bush administration. And, and, and you'll, you'll see what I'm saying is correct. Can we put a number on ISIS followers slash members? They seem to be a prominent group in terms of their action, but are they really that large in number? If there are, if there are 50,000 ISIS members worldwide, there are 1.7 billion Muslims. So like these people do not equal a hundredth of a percent of Muslims. Like if you take 0.001, like they constitute even less than that. So like that is like the, the, the percentage of people who are involved in this organization. As I mentioned, according to uh, State Department statistics, statistics of the EU, the vast majority of targets of ISIS and people they kill are Muslims. So Muslims have the biggest stake in wanting to see ISIS go away because Muslims are the number one casualties or victims of ISIS overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, right? So uh, that's just to put it in some sort, of, some sort of perspective for you. Now, also, the, I also find it interesting, and this goes back to coverage, the selective discussion about terrorism, even global terrorism. Uh, remember there was a, a big uh, social media thing. Remember Stop Coney 2012? Remember that? The Lord's Resistance Army, which is a quasi-Christian organization that's designated by our State Department as a terrorist organization, or Christian militias that have been operating in the Central African Republic that literally have destroyed every mosque in the country. Now, you, we don't hear politicians or the news talking about the literally this equal number of people have been murdered by these groups in Uganda, the Congo, and Central African Republic as regard to ISIS. And they claim Christianity to the point that if you go back at news stories last year, they were telling Muslims, convert or die. Just like ISIS went into Christians in the area of Iraq and told them, pay a tax, convert, or die. Right? Or you have 24 hours to leave the village of Mosul, for instance. Right? Doing the exact same thing. Or the Buddhist bin Laden in Burma or Myanmar, right? And actually, he was on the, the, the cover of Time magazine of Muslims being slaughtered and ran out of Burma, right? Where people were dying at sea on makeshift rafts, right? So, see, so it, it's almost as if the discussion of global terrorism related to religion has been made um, inaccurately synonymous with Muslims and Islam, while these other groups who are committing global terrorism, just because it's not in the news or, or it's not sexy to talk about in uh, Senate intelligence hearing uh, co committees, uh, that is not discussed, is not shown 
uh, in the media. But even still, I'm not for a tit for tat because even those uh, so-called uh, groups that do violence in the name of Christianity, including the Ku Klux Klan, claims to be a Christian organization, by the way. And we're talk Dr. This Dr. King's uh, birthday, uh, Dr. King's holiday, so we can't be remiss to talk about the Klan. Right, and all the black churches that were burned down in 2015. Um, we shouldn't be selective. Like again, let's look at the data. Like the data speaks for itself, right? Like let's stop having this erasure or like selective seeing of things. You know that that's that's my thing. Global terrorism is a real problem. There's terrorism in America. I like for us to deal with it. I like for us to focus on it based upon actually who's committing it. That's, that, that's, that's it. Because I, I want all of us to be safe. I want my children to be safe, right? I want your children to be safe. Thank you. So I'm going to allow other people to speak as well. Um, this next question is addressed to all three of you. Um, how are the three agencies represented here today able to communicate with one another and other agencies so that there's not a lot of replication of services, or do you find that there's a lot of replication of services? I can speak to, um, um, we just went to Cleveland um, in November and we talked to uh, an organization that convenes groups um, that work on similar work. And uh, we learned a lot, Global Detroit did, and we, we, um, we work with partners. We don't replicate. We, for example, when somebody asked about veterans or, for example, somebody was on Twitter uh, talking to us about foreclosure, we always point to we have wonderful partners who work on foreclosure. We have wonderful partners that do homeownership home workshops. We have wonderful partners. You know, we don't want to replicate what's out there. Um, and we're convening, like I said earlier, all of the... Um, resettlement agencies, and one of the things that comes out of those meetings, um, we're working with the mayor and city council, and we've got our own internal work group and we're applying for funding, is they seem really relieved. For example, this organization can, has the capacity in the space to get, for example, a lot of the refugee families need a couch or a table, or they need um, to, the, the agencies will actually supply um, a fully furnished house. So people are donating, you know, towels and all kinds of materials, and there's one, I forget which one it is, but there's one agency that has a space and has, like, a, an infrastructure for this. So why don't we have them be the lead on that, as opposed to replicating and spending money, let's get three warehouses or four warehouses. Let's not do that. Let's create some sort of, like, electronic system that can tell us who has what and where, where does it need to be sent off, what are the... Um, most important things, for example, volunteers and like we need a truck to move this stuff around or we need a communication system so that when people are calling to donate, we can get to them quickly and organize, you know, a route or something like that. So all the resettlement agencies that we're working um, with uh, are also talking about, for example, um, who's the lead agency, who's the funder, uh, who is, who's the fiduciary. Uh, what are we good at? What you know? What learning do we need? To, that um, what systems are not working? I should just say. And um, they're really, really excited. Um, there's not a lot of competition. We think, and correct me, you will know the statistic. Late 2016 and 2017, we will know how many um, Syrian families are receiving in total coming. And so we are mobilizing now for the middle of summer, for the fall. Um, you know, we might get. 
X amount, you might get a lot more. Um, and we're realizing, for example, we would like to, um, you know, we've got a lot of great places in Detroit, and so we're actually talking to the land bank around that. How do we purchase some houses or homes? How do we utilize the resources we have, you know, already at our fingertips? And so um, the spirit of collaboration is really strong in Detroit, and there's a lot of resources, but, it, you know, we often find that people, I say this all the time, we are resource-rich and connection-poor. So one of the things that Global Detroit does a lot is we talk, 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 and... Um, when I have a new project, um, the first thing I do is sit down and strategize with who is not at the table. And then I send out an email and say, we're applying for something. Are you applying for this? Could we partner on this? You know, maybe you can deliver this service or who would deliver this service? So we spend a lot of time thinking about who we might invite onto um, the project or the, or the grant. Um, and uh, it takes a moment to do that. Like, so it's really easy to just sort of uh, begin writing and and then make fun of me. <laughs> we don't want to do that. So, so we're we're working on that. Yeah. Do either of the other agencies have anything to add about how we replicate or duplicate services? All good. I think we're covered. She covered it. I can't make sure you're drinking water. <laughs> okay. This again was directed at Diane, but I believe um, all of you may be able to comment. Um, a lot of the refugee children are children of color and have unique identities. Um, what are you doing to ensure that families who adopt these children are providing foster care services for them? Establish understanding environments that don't include the erasure of the children's cultural identities. Is there any training for the parents? If not, how can we as a community help prepare foster parents for the necessary conversations that must occur after, um, you know, signing up to foster? Awesome question. I love this question. So. Um, LSSM is one of 20 refugee foster care programs around the country. So there's only 20 of us, right, that do this work. Um, and that's because those 20 programs are customized for refugee and immigrant children, right? So refugee and immigrant kids don't go into the general foster care system. They're served by agencies that have policies and procedures and trainings and all those things set up. So that being said, foster parents have to go through the exact same licensing process as every other foster parent, right? But they get then additional training. After you go to the state-required training, then you have to go to LSSM's additional training about Refugee 101, understanding the basis. What do these documents look like? What Can, can a refugee work? Can they not work? What does this look like? Um, what do we need to help? keep our kids connected with their culture. I brought a little canvas over here. It's actually um, last summer for World Refugee Day in June, we had a group of kids get together and they met with an artist at a art studio and they made this painting together. So we had a local artist that kind of guided them. She made this picture, right? This is called Reflections on a Journey and it was supposed to be a straight path up a hill. Um, and the kids said, I don't think so. <laughs> um, so they said it has to have lots of twists and turns. People die on the way. People didn't want me to come here, so they built a wall with barbed wire. And then they, but after all those difficulties, right? They they put themselves um, having made it and and put words from their languages, right? Of hope and of love and of faith and and all the things that got them through, right? Um, but this is representative for me, right? We try to have things like that World Refugee Day where we're bringing the kids together so they can share cross-culturally. Sometimes we have a home. I can think of a home that we have where we have 
a youth from Afghanistan and a youth from the Congo and a youth from Eritrea in the same home, right? And they're Christian and Muslim and, oh, and the youth from India who um, is Hindi. And so, and the mom is Christian. And so they've got like three faiths represented and three different sets of likes and dislikes for food, right? And everything else that they have to work out together as a family. But we try to equip the families to be prepared for that. Um, and then provide ongoing training. So every month there's there's something they can attend and participate in. And we have a youth leadership work, right, where we bring the kids together so they can plan things for the other kids. What do they think everybody needs? How do we get them together? And try to create those small groups to help them preserve their culture and their heritage and learn the good things about the U.S. when they get here, right? We want them to learn the healthy things and avoid. And I know there are quite a few young people here today, um, the most welcoming group in most high schools, my kids tell me, my my kids, my 80 kids from 16 different countries, right? They tell me the most welcoming group at each high school are the kids that smoke marijuana and want to sell them drugs. <laughs> so I would say to those of you who are young, if you have a new refugee or an immigrant youth coming to your school, welcome them into your group of friends because they need to be connected with those that are making good decisions, right? Um, and learning those good things about our community, but also holding on to those good things about their faith and their culture that they bring and enrich us with. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to combine these two questions because they're similar. Dawood, can you clarify militarism and what can we do as voters in public forums to change negative images of that word when applied to Muslims? How do we instead build positive relationships? So it's a two-part question. Clarify militarism. Militarism is not anti-military. Like, I'm against militarism, but I'm a veteran of the U.S. Navy. I served from 1994 to 1998 and earned two Navy Marine Corps Chief of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. So um, I'm not anti-military or that term. Dr. King was not against the military, but it was against the military not serving the purpose of what's designed for, which is defense. Like the military not being involved in projecting American power and being involved in invading other countries and bombing those countries and then uh, uh, taking out certain governments or, or, or and, and in the process taking out uh, civilians playing uh, policemen of the world. Like, that's one aspect. And then the military-industrial complex, which, whether we like it or not, is a multi-billion dollar business that has uh, special interests and has lobbyists all throughout Washington, D.C. and other places. And selling military equipment and selling bombs is big business. And not just selling them here, but selling them to countries that have nefarious uh, and I'll pick on them I'll pick on a Muslim country Egypt like we give them two billion dollars a year and then much of that is not cash but it's basically we give them money but then the money we hold basically an escrow hold an account which then we give them to Northrop or or whoever right different military companies so then to give them uh, airplanes bombs, and even guns and tear gas to tear gas to shoot their own people, right? So that's why that's the military uh, industrial complex. So some of it has to do with just straight up capitalism, right? And then also in order 
to deploy this massive military that we have with bases that are based on a Cold War paradigm that have nothing to do with keeping us safe, then we have to like use this stuff, right? And in order to invade countries or bomb countries or use drones on innocent civilians or people, right? Because like the majority of like 90% of the people that get killed by our drone program under President Obama are non-enemy combatants. 90% of the people kill are civilians, right? Then those people have to be dehumanized. But they're actually humanized and we couldn't go like bomb them to bits, right? So then since the fall of the Soviet Union and the Cold War era ending, the new so-called existential threat to the American way of life has been framed as being Muslims. So we have to like look at things and dig beneath the surface. You know, I had one of my uh, teachers in religion. He's he's, uh, he's philosophical. He used to say that um, you know just don't look at the surface of things, but look beneath the surface. So he made an analogy of like I'm sorry if I'm preaching. I'm also an imam, so I preach every Friday. Excuse me. Uh, the the top layer of our skin that we're looking at is actually being our real skin. We're actually looking at dead skin. Like what is living is actually slightly like beneath like the next layer of the skin. Like what we're looking at is actually not even like really living. This is dead. Like the reality of the skin is actually beneath this like layer that's dead. The same things, just looking at things on a very superficial level like politicians so-and-so said this and this is what the reality like nine times out of ten that's really not the reality right uh so that's my my sermon <laughs> <That's what I'm laughs> <saying. All right. laughs> i'm going to do my best to read this one um please please uh let me know if i get it correct or not i believe it is as a muslim i there's bias around the terrorists who claim to be Muslim, um, and they affect everyday interaction with society. Have any of your own children or family members experienced bullying and hate comments spoken to them, and do they fear being profiled or tangled while out in public? Uh, my children have gone, I have three children, and uh, three of them have gone to private Islamic school their entire lives. Uh, I did allow my eldest uh, going in ninth grade and tenth grade now. He goes to Cast Tech in Detroit, so I've allowed him to go. He's heard very few anti-Muslim comments. Uh, what my children are more scared of is actually physical harm happening to me. Cause they know I've received a number of death threats and. Um, you know, they know about those and the FBI investigating some of those. So I've had my children on a number of times ask me to ask me to uh, to quit my job and go get like a safe government job or to, you know, to like leave, go work for the Social Security Department or something like that. But uh, it's more so I think they're more worried about me than I'm worried about them being uh bullied in, in school regarding being Muslim. Are you guys connected to any type of bullying or race issues? Um, I do have one child whose skin tone is like me and one that is not. Um, and I, he has 
fortunately not experienced a lot of racism or bullying as of yet. He's 10, though. Um, but I will say I have 12 youth that attend the same um, suburban school district, right? 12 uh, youth in our program who are from El Salvador, Guatemala, um, Bangladesh, and Somalia, right? So there are four different countries of origin among these 12 boys. And um, the boys that are Muslim did say after um, things started happening over the last several months and after things have been on TV, um, their impression of what's being said on TV and what has been said by some of their classmates in the high school is that no Muslims are welcome here. And they have felt that um, despite a very proactive approach by the school to provide them a place, a place to pray um, and a place to feel welcome. And many of their friends from the soccer team helping them feel welcome, right? Soccer, we find, is our universal language um, <laughs> among our young people. Um, so I, I think that as an agency, we have experienced more welcoming statements and things have been happening the last few months, more outcries of support from churches across the board, mosques across the board, and other community members that, that don't don't follow particular faith. So, so as an organization, we've just heard a lot more support than anything else. 